Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to revisit one of my favorite interviews from the past. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the chance uh, to talk with the wonderful singer-songwriter Janice Ian ahead of uh, a performance in Logan. I reached her by telephone and uh, had uh, great fun uh, speaking with Janice Ian. Hope you enjoy this on today's program. Welcome to Access U Time. Tom Williams. And we're pleased to have with us for the hour uh, great singer songwriter Janice Ian. Janice Ian, of course, uh, famous for many songs, uh, not only recorded by her, but by many others. And we just heard a portion of At 17 from 1975, an anthem about teenage angst, uh, famous still. Uh, Society's Child was the hit that uh, rocketed her to fame at age 15, a song about interracial romance, and ignited a controversy, a firestorm from coast to coast. Uh, she has recorded with uh, many artists, including uh, Willie Nelson and Chet Atkins and many others. And uh, we are pleased to welcome Janice Ian uh, to Access Utah. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Tom. How are you? Doing very well. Where, where are you uh, calling us from? Are I'm we... actually in Nashville. I'm home for 36 hours. Well, now I'm only home for 12. <laughs> uh, I want to take uh, take you back to uh, early days. Uh, some, a lot of people will be familiar with uh, with your story, but uh, the, for those who aren't, uh, this I learned, I didn't know this, your family was under FBI surveillance? They were most of my life. Well, until I was 16 and I moved out. Um, my father was a chicken farmer, and he made the mistake of going to a meeting about the price of eggs, and the FBI picked him up on his way home. And uh, apparently there was something subversive in that. And then my mom attended the Civil Rights Congress, and so she went on the watch list because of that. And the family story goes that the FBI came and interrogated my parents twice. And the third time, I had just been born, and my father refused to let them into the house. And when the agent tried to come in anyway, my father accidentally shut the door on his wrist. So we progressed. Well, my, You know, it, it's just so, it's so stupid and such a waste of government resources tracking people like my folks. I mean, my dad was a GI. He went back to school on the GI Bill. He became a music teacher. And the, the terrible thing is that because the FBI would go to the schools just before he was up for tenure each time, he was never able to get tenure, which would have guaranteed him a contract and that he couldn't be fired. And it would have allowed us to settle down and stay in one place. And instead, we moved every second or third year because the FBI would go in and ask his principal if my father had been seen consorting with known communists again. Hmm. So it was a, a pretty horrible time in our country's history, a pretty hysterical time. Although with the, with the King hearings now, I'm not sure how far away we are from that. Yeah. So I guess because of this, your, your family's under surveillance all your growing up years. Yeah, yeah, we got yeah. used to seeing. But, you know, it was also stupid because you could always spot them. I mean, there'd be this guy at the height of the summer heat. There'd be a guy wearing a black suit with a black tie and a white shirt, and he'd be standing by the mailbox trying to look casual. So it wasn't really terribly hard to, to escape them. Mm-hmm. Kind, of, kind of like in the movies. It was very much like yeah. in the movies. I, yeah. I, don't, I wonder if Hoover ever realized what a, uh, what a joke they were in many ways. 
And uh, you, you started writing early. Uh, you started playing guitar at age of 10, first song written at 12. I did. Uh, that was uh, Hair of Spun Gold? That's right. Wow. You've done your homework. Uh, wow. So and, and already pretty serious themes. This Hair of Spun Gold about a, a, a young girl who gets married very early, has a, has a child, and then kind of singing to this child, you'll have a better life than me. But. Yeah, very much in the tradition of the old folk songs and the child ballads. Well, I grew up in a house filled with music. I started piano when I was about two and a half or three years old. Both my parents always sang, my grandparents all sang. I think music is one of the things that ties immigrants to their roots and yet lets them live in their new country. You can sort of have the best of both worlds. And on top of that, we were Jewish, and there's a lot of music to all of the liturgy there. So I grew up with a lot of music. My dad was a big folk fan. My mom was a huge jazz fan. My, my mother grew up in the Bronx, and she and her older brother would sneak down the fire escape on the weekends and go to Harlem and dance all night and then sneak back into their bedrooms at dawn before my grandmother could find them. So my mom had seen Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald and all of the, the great jazz singers, Sinatra, when they were starting out. So I really grew up informed by those songs, and that's between the folk music and the jazz, that's great, great stuff. I and mean, Johnny Mercer and Hoagy uh, Carmichael, people like that. And then one day I picked up a Buffy St. Marie album because I thought she was just astonishing. And I saw that she had written one of those songs. And i would be honest, Tom, I, I don't think it had ever occurred to me that people wrote songs. And to me, they just kind of were there. But once I read that, with all the, the arrogance of a 12-year-old, I thought, well, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, so I started I, writing. I guess that's what it takes sometimes. I guess just to know you can't you you can't not do it. Um, Janice Ian is our guest, of course, uh, writer of many uh, great songs, including at seventeen and uh, uh, Jesse, uh, Society's Child. Her songs have been covered by many famous artists. She's collaborated with uh, with many uh, great artists. Uh, later in the program, we'll want to talk about Chad Atkins. Uh, you wrote about him on on his passing and uh, had some great experiences with him. Uh, and uh, Janice lives in Nashville now. I do, uh, she's... 23 years now. Let's get to some emails. And sure. we have some uh, email questions coming in already. First email is from Tracy in uh, Ogden. Uh, you've written about working with the late singer-songwriter Lara Nero. What was she like? I'm, I might be mispronouncing that. I'm sorry. Lara Nero. No, that's right. You okay. Uh, what um, was she like? Just immensely talented and inarticulate. I think a... a Singers, singer-songwriters fall into two camps. We're either immensely verbose, and if you ask us what time it is, we will tell you how a watch is made, or we're really inarticulate. And Laura was not terribly articulate when she spoke. She had problems sometimes communicating with musicians, which is where I came in, because occasionally her producer, Charles Colello, would call me and ask me to interpret. And I once went down to the studio, and Laura had told the musician she wanted it to sound purple. And that was kind of a hard one for them. You know, mm-hmm. musicians just don't talk like that. But I, I knew what she meant because, well, it made sense to me. So uh, she was a lovely woman, amazing writer. She died way, way too young. She was always extremely gracious, I think, it would be the word that I would use. She was gracious to her friends and gracious to her fans and, and funny. Just had a great sense of humor. 
Uh, next email question comes from Marcus in North Logan. Marcus writes, what do you remember about being on that first Saturday Night Live with host <laughs> George Carlin? Uh, not a whole lot. I had strep throat and a fever of 104, so I was, I was kind of out of it. I had flown in that morning on the red eye from Los Angeles. I was mid-tour. None of us really knew what we were getting into. No one could have predicted that it would be this kind of hit. Everybody was terrified because it was the first live variety show since the Sullivan Show had gone off the air. So most of the people had no experience with anything live. They did have a bunch of the old Sullivan camera crew. Um, and, of course, their announcer had done live TV forever. I do remember <laughs> seeing the paper mache and the puppets with Jim Henson and wondering what on earth I had gotten myself into. Uh, Marcus has a uh, follow-up. He says, did you have any idea that it was the start of something legendary? No, you never know that. I mean, I'm still stunned that anybody remembers Society's Child at 17. You know, the music industry or the music business is so young in its present form. It really only goes back to when we started making records for, for wide distribution, which would be the 40s. And it's really a young business, so we have, we have no concept of longevity. It's not like, and I mean, frankly, it's not like we're talking about Bach or Beethoven here. Uh, we have another uh, emailer, uh, Kristen in Logan. Here's what she says. Is there a cover version of one of your songs that means the most to you? Oh, I would be a fool to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, and truthfully, no. I, when somebody like a Bette Midler or a John Mellencamp records one of your songs, uh, you know as a writer, I, well, I know with Bette anyway, she goes through between 500 and 1,000 songs before she settles on what she's recording. So to make that kind of cut, uh, that's pretty amazing in the first place. Um, everybody brings their own interpretation. And I think if, if I look at a song like Stars, which is my most recorded song, I can listen to that by Cher or Glenn Campbell or Mel Torme or Nina Simone. That's such a wide span, and they're all completely different. The one thing that they all have in common is that those artists really put their heart into that song. So I, I guess my answer would be that, fortunately for me, I seem to write songs that people put their hearts into. And beyond that, uh, beyond that, I'm just really happy when somebody records one of them. We're talking with Janice Ian, acclaimed singer-songwriter, of course, author of... Uh at 17 and Society's Child and many others and as you've just heard uh, many of her songs covered by some uh, some very famous artists um, we're going to get into talking about some of her uh, great hits and the interesting uh, parts of her autobiography by the way the autobiography is called Society's Child uh, published in 2008 and the website is JaniceIan.com a lot of interesting things there uh, I wanted to ask about Society's Child I, I read that um, of course some of these very searing experiences that you had had sort of faded a bit and you went back to some clippings right to, as you were writing your autobiography I did I went back through uh, fortunately my mom had kept most of my press clippings so I was able to go back through a lot of those and I had also kept journals from the time I could write um, something that most writers seem to do I uh kind of kept track of what I was doing and where I was, and I had a lot of my old date books as well. So all of that really helped jog my memory, fortunately, because when I started writing my autobiography, my one terrifying fear was that I would misremember something and get the date completely wrong and embarrass myself and everyone else. 
Well, let's, uh, for people who aren't familiar with Society's Child, uh, this is a song about an interracial romance. Let's hear a bit of this and then talk about it. Come to my door, baby. Face is clean and shining black as night. My mother went to answer, you know that she looks so fine. Now I could understand your tears and your shame. She called you So uh, I've read that this uh, comes out of uh, an experience or experiences in the place where you lived, which was uh, predominantly black. East Orange, New Jersey, yeah. It was an all-black neighborhood at that time. Well, not all-black. There were three other white kids in my school. It was, it was pretty b- predominantly black. I believe it still is. And on both sides, uh, the kids were discouraged from interracial romances. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think I said in the book, I I understand it better now that I'm an adult. I understand that... You don't want your children to go through any unnecessary heartache or pain. And at the time, in the 60s, interracial marriage was still illegal in a lot of places in America and certainly cause for comment in most others. Um, now, I don't think we think much about it, but back then it was really volatile. And so the song really became a lightning rod for, for both sides. Yeah, this was uh, when I, 1965? 1965. Yeah, so that, was, that would have been uh, right during that time. And uh, as I understand it, uh, and I guess you couldn't have foreseen the firestorm that happened. No, I don't think any of us who were involved with that record had a clue. The first tip-off should have been when we had recorded it for Atlantic Records, and Atlantic gave the master recording back to my producer, Shadow, and told him to, uh, to go place it somewhere else because they couldn't put it out. We were all really shocked because Atlantic was the home of Aretha and uh, all kinds of black artists, so we thought it would be a natural, but they just couldn't put it out. Jerry Wexler, I will say, the president of Atlantic, then uh, apologized to me at the Grammy Awards a couple of years later, loudly and publicly, which I thought was a very stand-up thing to do. As I understand it, um, your producer, somebody suggested that this, before it became a hit, as you're recording it, if you remove the word black, it could become a hit. <laughs> that was Shadow, my producer. And he wasn't, he wasn't doing anything more than trying to educate me because, you know, what did I know? I was 14. It was the coolest thing in the world that I was getting to make a record. I didn't think beyond that. But he took me outside, and I remember he said, if you will change that one line, black as night, to anything other than black, if you will change it to bright as night or dark as night or anything that wouldn't indicate that this is a Negro, which was the word then, uh, I can guarantee you a number one record. And that was back in the days when you actually could guarantee a number one record. So the person who was standing there with us said, you know, if you whore now, you'll whore forever. And I thought, wow, that's true. So I didn't do it. Easy to be brave at 14, you know? I I suppose so. Although, you know, you you were brave. Uh, I wonder if you could... uh, 
recount a bit uh, the the experience you uh, put in the prologue to your autobiography, an experience in oh. Encino, California, a yeah. performance of uh, you you sing Society's Child, and there's a virulent reaction. I would get what we call a clack, which is a group of people who buy tickets all together, and sometimes a clack is a good thing. Sometimes. 20 fans will arrange to sit together and then they'll arrange to clap and hoot and holler and just inspire the rest of the audience. Sometimes a clack has a, a more insidious purpose. And this was the first time that happened to me. After, after this time, it happened a few more. But I was in Encino, California. I was 15 and a half by then, I think. And I was playing Society's Child. I got about halfway through the first verse when somebody started a commotion I couldn't really see because of the stage lights, so I kept singing, and the commotion got a little louder, and just as I uh, stepped back from the microphone to find out what was going on, a man stood up in the crowd and yelled out, nigger lover, go home, and I was so shocked that I didn't know what to do, so I started singing again because I figured that was the professional thing to do. The group around him all stood up and started shouting that as well. And uh, they began chanting it. It was just an obscenity. Um, Nigger lover, go home. And I finally started to cry, and I didn't want them to see me crying, so I put down my guitar and I walked off stage. And the promoter found me a few minutes later, hunched over the sink in the bathroom, crying. He asked me, what was I doing off stage because the show wasn't over yet? He was pretty annoyed with me. And I explained to him, and he told me I had to go back out. I told him I wasn't going out. I was, I mean, I, I'll be honest about it, I was terrified. I, I'd been getting death threats, um, but I had mostly ignored them because they weren't right in my face. This was pretty much in my face. And I was terrified to go back out there. I kept thinking of Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, and... March on Montgomery and the church bombings and uh, and myself laying there with a bullet through my heart. And then he finally said that he couldn't believe that a person who could write that song was a coward. And I realized that, uh, as, as uh, brave as it sounds now, it really wasn't. It was sort of a no alternative. I realized that if I didn't go on stage again, then I couldn't go home and face my family. I had been raised on stories of the Maccabees and stories of David and Goliath, and I had really been taught that if I didn't do for others, there would be nobody left to do for me when I was in need. And I, I couldn't have faced my family if I hadn't gone back out. So, so I went back out. And it was pretty amazing because, of course, they started chanting again, but the people in the seats behind them, who I guess had been too stunned to react, now reacted and, and reached up and pulled them back into their seats. And then all of the 16- and 15-year-old ushers came down the aisle and shone their flashlights in their faces and uh, showed them to their neighbors. And then the manager came and threw them out. So it was vindication, in a sense, but it was really terrifying, really scary. It scared me for decades and decades, well into my 40s. And uh, you, I read, you'd have people come and spit in your food. Yeah, they, well, sometimes in my food, sometimes in my face. What are you going to do? You know, people don't have better things to do with their saliva. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pr pretty scary, pretty scary. It was very scary. And it, it's really hard, I think, to imagine now how 
uh, a song could be the object of such hatred because now we're so inundated and we have so many different outlets. But then, you know, there were there was Life and Look and Time and Newsweek, and I made all of those. And then there was the Carson Show, which was the Tonight Show, and a couple of daytime TV shows. That was pretty much it for music shows. So having covered all of them, I became pretty notorious or famous, depending on, I guess, how you're looking at it. We're talking with Janice Ian, uh, acclaimed singer-songwriter, um, author, of course, of Society's Child. We've been talking about that. We'll talk about at 17. Some of her recent work moved to Nashville, uh, what, uh, how many years ago, 20 years ago or so? 23 years ago. And uh, have uh, put out some uh, acclaimed albums uh, from Nashville and uh, talk about uh, some other things, including... Um, your foray into uh, writing science fiction. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll get to that uh, <laughs> following a brief break. Back with more with uh, Janice Ian following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're hearing one of my favorite interviews, an interview from uh, March of 2011, of course, with the wonderful singer-songwriter Janice Ian. Hope you're enjoying the interview. More is coming right up. On the next Humankind, we visit with the meditation congressman, Ohio's Tim Ryan, who says the simple practice of sitting quietly and clearing the mind allows him to process the emotions of Washington and can help school children to learn. Also, we talk with the author of Hamlet's Blackberry. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. Thursday and Friday night at 8.30. And beginning August 10th, please join us. Humankind moves to Sunday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Sweetgrass Counseling Services. With Dr. Deb Cupel, helping to empower individuals, families, and couples in everyday challenges, including health and sport-related issues. Details at SweetgrassCounseling.com. And the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. An in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation. Featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure details at shiftjh.org. The question you'd most like to ask the most powerful politician, the most innovative scientist, the most talented musician, is the kind of question here and now puts to those very people. Your curiosity is our curiosity. Here and Now gets the answers, and we share them with you every weekday. Join us for Here and Now on Utah Public Radio. Coming soon here on UPR. Details at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing one of my favorite interviews. Had the uh, great opportunity to speak with singer-songwriter Janice Ian uh, ahead of uh, a performance in Logan. And uh, here's the second half of the interview. Gonna write my autobiography I've led a fascinating life Had a husband and a wife you will truly be amazed Just how humble I have stayed Enough about me, let's talk about you What do you think of me? You must feel such gratitude That you will get to read My autobiography 
There's a song, my autobiography, a little <laughs> flash of humor, humor there. That's, a, that's a, some funny lines. Thanks. Uh, Janice Ian is our guest. She's author of Society's Child and at 17 and many other hits. Uh, many of her songs have been covered by uh, great artists. And uh, uh, her uh, autobiography, speaking of autobiographies, Society's Child is what it's called. It's out in 2008, available, I believe, in uh, hardcover and paperback. And the website is JaniceIan.com. And uh, we have Pat in Logan, who's been patiently waiting through the break. Uh, thanks for calling, Pat. Go ahead with your question or comment. Well, I, uh, two comments. Uh, one, one, I wanted to say that this, uh, Joan Baez, uh, in a concert uh, a while back, uh, announced from stage her gratitude for uh, Janice's help uh, getting through writer's block. And, Did she uh, really? Yeah. Well, how yeah. nice of her. Yeah, and then she... I, uh, and she was, uh, you know, thank you profusely for wow. helping her, that she had hit a stumbling wall or whatever writing, and that you helped her write through it. That's very kind of her. Yeah, she's uh, quite a lady. Yes. And uh, and then I also uh, want to mention I'm in a, uh, I guess what, interracial, biracial, whatever, multi-ethnic uh, <laughs> marriage with, uh, now we have a, uh, oh, three generations now, I'm now a grandparent. And I just wanted to thank you for your uh, uh, courage. Well, you're welcome. Although, in fairness, um, I don't think it was courage so much as dumb luck and, and not really seeing any alternatives, but I, I'll take it anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, it, I, I, think it, uh, I think it helped our country. Well, thank you. Society. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Appreciate the call. No, Tom, it's, it's funny being a performer these days because growing up in the 60s, as, as both Joan and I did, you used to see each other all the time at airports because airports were so small and so few people traveled by air because it was so expensive. So you would always run into other performers at airports and at hotels because most hotels really did not want us, so there were only a couple here and there that we could stay at in the big cities. And you got to know each other on the road, and nowadays everybody is so busy and so quick that we sometimes try to leave each other notes, and Tracy Chapman and I left each other notes all over Australia at one point, and I did that with Joan Armitrading in Europe. But it's also just so nice for someone like me to hear that Joan did that um, via your last caller. That's a really cool thing. You have a, a series of articles in Performing Songwriters. This is on your website, JaniceIan.com. I was interested. It's a, a series of articles called 101. Uh, uh, one that stood out to me was Stage Fright. Um, stage Fright 101. Overcoming Stage Fright. I, have, have you had that experience? Um, fortunately for me, and I'm busy knocking wood here, no. Not in the sense that I had paralyzing stage fright. Apparently a lot of classical musicians go through that. When I was writing for Performing Songwriter... I really was trying to intersperse my regular articles, which were just kind of humorous takes on things, with how-to articles for other performers. Uh, at the time, there weren't all these books out about how to do this with songwriting and how to do that with performing. There, there still aren't very many good books out about performing. So I did, uh, oh gosh, how to, how to not get in trouble on the road with sex and how to stay healthy on the road. They were all 101 articles, as you say, um, that particular topic, stage fright, became really interesting to me because I knew a number of performers in my field who suffered from really paralyzing stage fright. One woman who would <clears throat> actually um, throw up before a show. And my initial reaction to that when I started research was, 
well, you're an idiot. Why, why perform then? I mean, just don't do it. But the more I researched, the more I realized that this was in part largely a physiological reaction to adrenaline. And unlike someone like me, where I count on that adrenaline before a show to warm me up and to give me an edge, their adrenaline just hit their brains and said, no, flee, flee. <laughs> we can't really do that when you've got 10,000 people waiting for you, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to uh, to research it and go through the medical stuff. And it was fun being a, a journalist, you know, because being a journalist gets you into places that songwriters can't get into. You know, you have a little badge that says your magazine, and you can get in backstage, and you can meet all kinds of people. It was fun. Uh, at least one article created a bigger controversy than perhaps you counted on. That was uh, talking about oh. the, the uh, Internet. The Internet. And what the new model for distributing music should be. Yeah, um, it was interesting, Tom. My editor, Lydia Hutchinson, and I had sat down and tried to kind of map out my year because I was on the road a lot, and it was easier for me if I had guidelines. And she had suggested that I do an article about downloading, which at the time was still much newer than it is now. Napster was the big thing. And she said, do do an article about that. Do some research, see what you think. And I said, well, that's easy. It's, It's bad for business. That was how I went into it. But the more I researched, the more I found that it was, it was in fact not bad for business. It was actually quite good for business. And um, it was interesting because it was the first time I wrote an article where rumor about it got out because I solicited about 100 people for their opinions. And I talked to people about the research I was doing. Rumor got out and the RIAA, the Recording Industry of America, <laughs> suddenly showed a great interest in my little article, which nobody had ever cared about before. So I really tried to, uh, to attack it with an open mind in, in the journalistic sense. And being a journalist is very different from being a, a songwriter or a prose writer because you're not supposed to allow your, your personal feelings to enter into it, or at least not in the research part. But again, the more I researched, the more I realized downloading was good. So that's basically what I said, and I cited facts and figures to back up my assertions, and um, I cited my sources, which Lydia's editor-in-chief made me do. And I, I, uh, I forgot about it. It was published, and I got a few really annoyed emails from other performers. One person said, I'm going to give away all your records. And I said, great, that's the point of the article. And then all hell broke loose. The article got put on Slashdot, uh, which is a big internet geek site, and I found out about it when I was driving to Canada for my next run, and my webmaster at the time called and asked whether I was fooling with the website counter that counts how many hits you've had. I didn't even know you could do that. And so we pulled over, and I, uh, I checked into our hotel, and I turned on my computer, and we were getting 50,000 hits an hour which for a little website was just unreal. We crashed our server three times. And then, of course, my tour manager at the time said, put your money where your mouth is, put up some free music. So by the next morning, we had six free songs or ten free songs up. And what we found and what we still find is uh, the free material creates sales. Sales for my stuff jumped 300%. So there was big controversy over that, and I wrote a follow-up article, and I said, here's what I think should happen. I think there should be one central... <laughs> downloadable site that eventually would feature videos and films and trailers and uh, allow you to find out everything about an artist and it should be priced so that it would be reasonable 
I suggested a quarter a download. And then I said to all the record companies, you have all of this out-of-date catalog that is not in print. Most people my age who go on Napster are looking for things like the Andrews Sisters. Why don't you put it up for a year free and make some friends and let the entire world know that the music industry is grateful? And then you can start charging for it. It's not going to cost you anything but putting online. It was so stupendously simple a concept. It was just so stupidly easy to, to think of. I mean, it's not like I was a a prophet or anything. But uh, almost a year to the day, <laughs> Apple came out with iTunes. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty much the same model that I had outlined. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, you were you were ahead of the curve there. Um, I, I want to talk about at seventeen. I guess just sure. as just as you probably have to play that at your <laughs> concerts, um, it, our listeners would be interested. Let's hear a bit of this and then uh, talk about it. I learned the truth at seventeen. Their love was meant for beauty queens In high school girls with clear skin smiles Who married young and then retired The valentines I never knew The Friday night charades of youth Were spent on one more beautiful At seventeen I Portion of seventeen, I think we all know the song. It, it uh, probably your feedback you get it resonates with people of all ages. It's pretty fantastic, Tom. And I have to say, I never get tired of singing it. There's something about that song and looking into an audience's eyes. I mean, it, it's a real cliche, but when I see how the audience reacts, it just brings the song to life all over again. Uh, indicating maybe everyone's had experiences like this. I think so, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to me because the song was only a hit in America. It never even charted in Europe or Australia uh, or Japan. And yet, about 10, 15 years ago, I started having to sing it in all of those places as well because everybody seemed to know it, even in Japan, where they'll they'll sit there and sing it back to me in English, even if they don't understand the words mm-hmm. in English. This, I read, um, has Genesis in a, uh, a young lady you saw on a bus? Was that... No, that, uh, actually, that was Society's Child. Okay. This song sprang off of the New York Times. Okay. Um, I was flat broke and living with my mother, very embarrassed to be living at home with her again. And I considered that the least I could do was try to write songs while I was waiting for my record to come out. And I was sitting at her dining room table one afternoon while she was at work, reading the New York Times magazine section. And there was an article that began something like, I learned the truth at 18. And it was by a debutante who had learned at 18 that uh, coming out and a coming out ball were not all they were cracked up to be and didn't solve anything. I was playing guitar at the time, and I had this little samba figure going, and um, 
I learned the truth at 17, scammed, and I took off from there. And the minute I started writing it, I, I knew I had something that, oh, I could either be completely honest or I could just make it a piece of fluff. And I, I chose completely honest. And it took three months because it was a scary song. You know, you're writing about ravaged faces. To sing that in front of an audience and to expose yourself that way was, it was really hard. If if I've ever done anything brave, it was that. Mm-hmm. You know, really, the rest of the stuff is a fluke. But that, that I really, it was very hard to do. And I sang it the first three or four months with my eyes closed because I, I didn't want to see anybody laughing at me. And then imagine my surprise. And uh, I suppose maybe that, that brutal honesty has contributed to its longevity. I think so. It's it's also, uh, oh boy, any songwriters or poets in your audience will understand this. It's an elegant song. It's, it's elegantly written. The turns of phrase are elegant, and that's kept it from being too dated, I think, because if you use vernacular, if you use slang particularly, the music becomes really dated really quickly. But something like at 17, it's bone deep, and yet it's not, it's not hammering it over your head. A friend of mine dug up this bit of trivia. You can, uh, I guess, confirm or, or deny this. Uh, <laughs> that you received 461 viol- Valentines on Valentine's Day 1977 uh, <laughs> based did. on that lyric. I did. I still get a lot of Valentines every Valentine's Day. I think it's just remarkably sweet of people. Yeah. And uh, when you met uh, Janis Joplin, this was, I guess, something that uh, you two had in common. Both felt a little bit outcast. Uh. Yeah, both had bad skin, both had overweight, both uh, both really struggled with, with feeling not very pretty at all. I thought Joplin was just fantastic looking. I thought she had an amazing face and a very um, limber face. You know, if you look at footage of her in concerts, things she could do with a smile were just extraordinary. But she didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's, and you, you hear that in some of her, uh, uh, you know, things she's written that she she felt like an outcast there in mm-hmm. Texas uh, growing up. Um, we do have another uh, caller, Barbara in Hiram. Hey, Barbara. Barbara, welcome Hi. to the program. Um, it sounds like you were destined to be a musician, but if you, I mean, did you ever think of doing anything else? Oh, sure. I was going to be a veterinarian, and I was going to do music on the side. Well, of course. I mean, when I was growing up, musicians didn't earn a living, not unless they were famous classical musicians. They scraped by. They certainly didn't have any any kind of permanence in their lives, much less health care or pension plans. So you needed something staple then, huh? Exactly, and that's, my mom made me learn to type, so I would always have that to fall back on. Um, okay. Thanks very much. <laughs> you know, and I, I don't know that I always meant to be a musician so much as I meant to be a writer. It sounds just like, I mean, we've got to be the same age, because we always had to have something, women had to have something to fall back, to fall back on. on, huh? That's right, that's right. And okay. it's good now, because I, I do all my own typing, I can answer my own email. <laughs> so it's fortunate now. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Thanks, Barbara. Appreciate that. I just have oh, about five minutes left with uh, Genesean. I want to get uh, just a snippet of a more recent uh, song. Maybe we could uh, play a little bit of uh, Folk is the New Black. Sure. Sing along. We can try our hand at kumbaya. 
Michael, row the boat ashore. You don't even have to burn your bra to fit in with this decor. Cause folk is the new black, cheaper than crack, and you don't have to cook. Download it and see, the first time is free, then you'll be hooked. Correct. You don't even have to risk your neck. Better than crack. Folk is the new black. A song, Folk is the New Black. Um, I had a good time writing that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 1983, after uh, some 10 years uh, of uh, making records and touring, it took a nine year hiatus. And uh, w- when you came back, went to Nashville. A lot happened in that hiatus. Oh, my gosh, so, yeah. Married a psychotic lunatic Portuguese, got divorced, had a gun held on me, lost my health, lost my home, found that I was $1.3 million in debt to the IRS. Yeah, it was a rough decade. Yeah, the, um, and in there studied acting and a whole, whole lot of other things. Mm. Uh, so I ended up in Nashville and, and have uh, rebuilt your career there and uh, some uh, critically acclaimed uh, albums. Uh, I want before we close. I want to uh, talk about this interesting fact. I didn't know until I went to your website. Uh, you have gotten into writing science fiction. Yeah, I'm not very good at it yet. Uh, the problem with writing is the more you do it, the better you get. If you have any talent, uh, the less you do it, the worse you get. Um, I love writing. Uh, writing is what I do. Writing is my core. And the reason that I've walked away from the business a couple of times is because I really felt my writing was being adversely affected. The writing has always been the most important part. So um, to try my hand at science fiction, yeah, I've had nine stories published, which I think is pretty respectable, but it's still nothing. I, I don't say this with any false humility. It's still nothing that I would buy. You know, it's, it's not Orson Scott Card or uh, Bob Silverberg or Connie Willis. And those, those are the people I set my sights on. Uh, you, you've enjoyed science fiction. I've loved science fiction since I was a kid. My dad was a huge science fiction fan. For my 16th birthday, he gave me his Martin guitar, and he gave me his collection of science fiction magazines. I had to, unfortunately, sell them uh, when the bottom dropped out. But it was in the family. And science fiction is very like jazz. You know, they're, they're both outlaw forms. They're both small enough genres that you can be experimental without people losing millions on you. So they, they lend themselves to a certain, I guess, more credibility than a lot of the other forms. I was interested uh, in your uh, article, this is in Performing Songwriter, uh, on the death of Chet Atkins. Mm. Uh, when you went to Nashville, uh, you said you, you had some maybe northern prejudices about the, the South. which Well, were, I had every northern prejudice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which were dispelled by Chet Atkins and his wife, and you, you, you struck up a friendship with Chet Atkins. I did. I was very fortunate to know Chet and, and to be loved by him and to love him back. And his wife, Leona, just were always wonderful to me. And um, boy, the day Chet died, I was performing, and my partner called me just before the show. And it was funny. It was like the bottom dropped out of Nashville for me. It, it still doesn't feel the same. Chet was, Chet was such a presence to those of us in the music industry. Um, he was such a phenomenal artist, too, and producer and writer and player uh, and inventor. He uh, did a lot of inventing. A lot of the Gibson guitar stuff owes a debt to Chet. So I was really um, moved 
write the memorial piece about him. And it wasn't until after that that I found out from a mutual friend that when I first came to town and Chet met me, he had called several people and said, if you have any problems with this girl, you just leave him at home and be still because she's mine. <laughs> and I, didn't, I had no idea until after he died that, that that was part of why my transition to living here was so smooth. Mm. Because I did come from the North, and uh, a Northerner is always going to sound louder and walk heavier, even if we don't. Well, we'll have to uh, leave it there out of time. Um, hey, and, Tom, thanks. This yes. was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoyed my interview with uh, Janice Ian from March of uh, 2011. What a pleasure to uh, to talk with her. We have a bit of time now, and we're going to hear uh, one of her big hits at 17. Thanks for listening. I learned the truth at 17 that love was meant for beauty queens and high school girls with clear skin smiles who married young and then retired the valentines i never knew the friday night charades of youth were spent on one more beautiful at 17 I learned the truth And those of us with ravaged faces Lacking in the social graces Desperately remained at home Inventing lovers on the phone Who called to say come dance with me It isn't all it seems It's 17 A brown-eyed girl in hand-me-downs Whose name I never could pronounce Said pity please the ones who serve They only get what they deserve
those whose names were never called When choosing sides for basketball It was long ago and far away The world was younger than today And dreams were all they gave for free To ugly duckling girls like me We all play the game when we dare To cheat ourselves, it's all a tear Inventing lovers on the phone Repenting other lives unknown They call and say commands with me Murmur vague obscenities Ugly girls like me at 17 And thank you for listening to Access Utah Today on Utah Public Radio. Now for some Utah news. UPR reporter Amy Kobabe brings us a story about the Tour of Utah bike race, which happened this week in northern Utah, and what it means for the state's culture and economy. Now in its 12th year, the Larry H. Miller Tour of Utah brings cyclists from around the world to race through some of the state's most beautiful and most challenging cycling landscapes. According to Jen Anders, executive director of the Tour of Utah, the tour is known around the country as being one of the most challenging races. We are known as America's Toughest Stage Race. That's our tagline. And this year we will travel 712 miles in seven days and climb 51,000 vertical feet. Uh, that is the equivalent of climbing Mount Everest just under two times. Four of the teams racing this year recently finished the Tour de France. Because of this, Jeff Warren, director of volunteers for Stage 3 in Davis County, and a cyclist himself, says the race is an opportunity for Utahns to see some of the world's best racing teams. They'll be coming directly from finishing that event to Utah to test their racers against not only the Utah terrain, but against one another. It's this amazing event that far, far too many people know nothing about. What we should really expect is to see some of the very best athletes in the world uh, up close and personal. Around 1,200 volunteers help support the race. Warren says that this year's tour will require more volunteers than ever before. Man, I can't tell you how many sleepless nights this has been. Uh, We were tasked with uh, the Bountiful stage from Antelope Island to Bountiful to get almost 500 volunteers. It's the largest number of volunteers the Tour of Utah has ever needed because the tour is going through residential areas for the first time ever. We, we needed tons of volunteers. According to Anders, because the routes will be going through residential areas, more spectators are expected compared to previous years. We anticipate that we'll see an increase in spectators uh, simply because we're racing through some more urban parts of uh, Utah. But I think in terms of how the race is, is put together, it's the competition is going to be as good as or better than years past. The third stage of the race is set to complete in Bountiful. And Bountiful Mayor Randy Lewis says he is hoping to see residents come out in force. Lewis expects more than his city's population to come cheer on the cyclists. 
You know, I, I said from the beginning, I wanted 50 on the 5th. That's 50,000 on the 5th. Now, that's a lot of people. They get around 30,000 to Park City. I think it's nice to set our goals high. You know, I don't know what that number is going to be, but it's nice to set it high. According to Anders, the race has a benefit not only for the individual communities that play host, but also for the state as a whole. She says that the race brings an estimated $20 million for the state's economy. Uh, We have people who come in from all over the country and and all over the world to be spectators at that race. So those are tourism dollars that are coming into the communities that we visit, and I really think that it will continue to grow. The race will conclude with the final stage on Sunday, August 9th in Park City. With Utah Public Radio News, I'm Amy Kobabe. Jesse Thorne here, host of NPR's Bullseye, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 on Utah Public Radio. We'll cut through the weeds of pop culture, share some irreverent comedy, explore in-depth interviews, and keep a keen eye out for what's worth knowing about. Bullseye on Utah Public Radio. Stay tuned for Bullseye from NPR, coming soon to Utah Public Radio. Details at our website, upr.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thanks again for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. UPR is also heard in Cedar City on KSUU at 91.1 FM. Stay tuned for The Zesty Garden coming up next. The time now is 10 o'clock, followed by performance today later on at 11.